Romans chapter 15, verses 22 to 33. Now, like I said right before we started the recording, uh, we're going to be dealing with this section of Scripture as part one tonight. We're going to break it all down and study the whole passage tonight. But there's something that's going to come out of tonight's study that is going to cause a question, a couple of questions, and we're going to answer both of those questions next week. So we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 33 tonight, breaking it all down, studying it, unpacking it. Next week, we'll spend the whole study in these same section dealing with those two questions that are going to arise from our study tonight. And in time, you'll find out what that is by the end of the study. So Romans 15, starting in verse 22, Paul says, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in pass. Uh, sorry, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. And to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Now when therefore I have completed this... And have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I'll come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints." So that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now Paul starts off verse 22 by saying this is why he was hindered from coming to visit the believers in Rome. Well, what, what is why? What was hindering him? Well, go back up real quick to the previous verses. Look at chapter 15 verses 20 and 21. And Paul had just said, and thus I make it my Ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. And he says, I've wanted to come to you for years, but my mission, the call of God, what we looked at last week in our study, what God had told him to do was to go preach the gospel to who? To the Gentiles. And at the same time, as we saw and just read, he had a passion not only to go preach to the Gentiles, but to go where the gospel really hadn't spread that much. People hadn't really heard very much about the gospel, and he wanted to go to those places. And so he had his hands full of lots of places. But the word of the gospel, excuse me, was spreading rapidly. Why do you think then that he wasn't in a hurry to get to Rome if his goal was to preach the gospel where the gospel hadn't spread yet very much. Well, the, Rome, the gospel had already spread to Rome. Go back to Romans chapter, uh, fifth, uh, chapter 1. Look at verses 1 through 15. 
All the way back to the beginning of our study of, of Romans, you'll notice he even tells them now in chapter one that he wanted to go see him. But notice what he says to him. He's writing to the church in Rome. He's writing to believers in Rome. It says in chapter one, verse one, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to those, all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So he's writing to Christians in Rome, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, wise and the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. But he, as you will see when we get to the end of our study in chapter 16, there's a lot of people that are connected with the church in Rome. And he says hi to so-and-so and make sure you say hi to so-and-so and all that. The gospel had spread in Rome and the church in Rome was actually kind of healthy. And the church in Rome actually was full of Gentiles. And that's kind of why he wanted to go. But as we saw tonight, he wanted to go spend some time in Rome, but he only wanted to stay for a little while because he really wanted to use Rome as a stopover on the way to where? Spain. He wanted to encourage them and have them encourage him. But as we're going to see tonight, he also wanted them to help him a little bit on his journey to Spain. And as much as he wanted to go because the church was mostly Gentiles and he's got a passion to preach to the Gentiles. His real passion and the, the, the foremost part of his mission was to preach where people really hadn't heard a lot about Jesus. And so there were a lot of those other places. And so because of that, he was being hindered from going to the place where the gospel had already spread because there were lots of places still that the gospel hadn't really gotten to as much. And he wanted to go there. But now go back to Romans 15. And look at again what he says here. Verse 22, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, the gospel's beginning to spread in all these regions that God had been sending me to. And since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. So I'm going to ask you another question then. Now, I'm not going to put any pressure on you, but Tuesday night got it right. Who was hindering Paul from going to Rome? Good for you. The answer is God, the Holy Spirit. Because Paul, as much as he made plans, as much as he had desires and designs that he wanted to accomplish, he lived his life listening to the Spirit of God, being led of the Spirit of God, letting God direct his steps. Go back to Acts chapter uh, 16. Acts chapter 16, or in your Bibles, just back up one book, to Acts 16, verses 6 through 10. Notice how Paul has plans, but he lets the Holy Spirit direct him. In Acts chapter 16, starting in, in verse 6, And they, this is Paul and his traveling companions, 
went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision of Paul, sorry, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia, that's important, man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, Paul's plan was to go into Asia. But God, through the Holy Spirit, said, I don't want you in Asia. I want the gospel in Asia, but you're not the one I'm going to use in Asia right yet. So then he tried to go into Mysia. In other words, he didn't just sit home and say, I'll just wait till I get a word from the Lord where I'm supposed to go. No, the God had already said, go. We're to be making plans, but we're to be listening. And so they try to go into Mysia, but they're listening. And the Spirit says, it's not Mysia. So then he has this vision of a man of Macedonia. And when he woke from that vision, he realized, okay, that's where God wants us to go. But if you know the story, he then goes looking for where God's at work. And the first convert in, in uh, Europe, Macedonia, is a woman named Lydia, who, by the way, was from Asia. God's awesome if we let him use his plans instead of ours. Now, I saw a hand jump up at one point. Go ahead. Didn't he originally want to preach to the Jews? Paul originally wanted to preach to the Jews, but God showed him, no, I've called you to go to the Gentiles. Yes, but that was his plan. And now, as we already saw earlier in Romans, his, in his preaching and obedience to God and preaching to the Jews, I mean, sorry, Gentiles, he was hoping to make the Jews jealous. He still wanted the Jews to be saved, but he also knew that his main focus was Gentiles and places where the gospel hadn't really gotten fully there yet. That's what he wanted to do. So, Go to Proverbs chapter 16. We've got we to deal with this a little bit more here about us. Proverbs chapter 16. Look at verse 9. It says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You're going to see when we get to the book of James that the book of James, it says, don't say tomorrow we're going to go into this city and do this and so on, but say what? If the Lord wills. Folks, the Christian life is full of balance. There are those who like to run to one extreme or the other when it comes to the Christian walk, and the Bible is full of balance. We should plan, but don't let your plan supersede the Holy Spirit's direction. You should be led of the Spirit, but that doesn't mean you don't make plans. You have to learn how to do all of that together. And when you do so, God then orchestrates what's going on in your life. And it's a fun way to live. Let me give you another example of how Paul did this. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Look at verses 5 through 9. 5 through 9. Many of us have probably been taught over the years to look for an open door or a closed door. I'm going to blow that up. Go to 1 Corinthians 16. Look at verses 5 through 9. Paul says to the church in Corinth, he says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go, for I don't want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened for, to me, and there are many adversaries. So Paul says, I want to come see you 
And I don't want it to be a quick visit. I want to spend some time there. I might spend the winter with you, but I'm going to not come right now because I'm going to stay in Ephesus. Here's why. God has opened a door for me. Even though there's adversaries and there's opposition, God's opened a door for me and I'm to stay. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And look at verses 12 and 13. The same guy writing to the same people in a different letter. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verses 12 and 13. Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Isn't that interesting? Here, he says, God opened a door, but I didn't have peace about it. And I didn't stay. We've been taught if God opens a door, you just that's the door you're supposed to walk through. No. If you look at the scriptures faithfully, you'll notice that sometimes God will give you a test, even though it's an open door, to see if you're going to be listening to the spirit, whether or not you're going to be led of the spirit. You know that the prophet Elijah was told to go to this mountain. and He was going to meet with God. And then there was the earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. Then there was the fire and God wasn't in the fire. And there was the mighty Rushing wind, but God wasn't in that. And then there was the still small voice. We know another story where a prophet was told by God, you go make your prophecy to the king. Here's what you say to the king. And then you go home a different route. And if anybody asks you to stay and eat with them, don't do it. And he does. King even says, hey, stick around, have a meal. Nope. Takes off running. Goes home a different way. On his way back, a prophet Another prophet comes out and says, God told me to tell you it was okay to eat with me. And he does. You all know what happened to that prophet that was told not to eat with anybody? A lion ate him. Or killed him. Didn't eat him. Just stood over him. Isn't that interesting? Be careful of just using, of, well, this, this opportunity opened up. That must be what God wants. God wants you to move beyond that to listening to the Spirit. Make plans. Be looking for where you're going, but be listening to God as you go. By the way, Paul wasn't the only person that did that. Go to Acts chapter 8. Now, as you're turning to Acts chapter 8, we'll start in verse 26. Let me give you the backstory. We're about to read about a man named Philip. Philip, along with many others, were scattered because of the stoning of Stephen and the persecution that broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. And Philip ends up in Samaria. And when he ends up in Samaria, a revival breaks out in Samaria. God uses Philip mightily and a revival breaks out in Samaria. All these people are getting saved. And in the midst of the revival, this happens. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the passage of scripture that he was reading 
meaning was this, like a sheep that he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, here, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So Philip, in the midst of the revival in Samaria, the Spirit of God through an angel comes to him and says, Look, I want you to head south toward, out toward Gaza. But as he's on his way toward Gaza, he never makes it to Gaza because the Spirit then tells him to go over to this chariot. Leads this Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord as they baptize, he baptizes him. By the way, you Star Trek people, God's been transporting people long before Star Trek started doing it. He just was transported from there to another place. Again, let me remind you of Mark chapter 1, verse 35. The Bible says Jesus got up early in the morning and went off to pray. When his disciples woke up, they didn't know where he was, so they went looking for him. And when they found him, this is what they said. They said, there's a group of people, there's a crowd of people that are looking for you. And Jesus said, time to go to the next town. Wait a minute. <laughs> a group of people wanting to see you, Jesus. Yeah, but I... And following the Father, not the crowd. Isn't that interesting how our churches have been taught to try to draw a crowd? Jesus actually avoided them. He was more interested in what the Father was doing than the big numbers. Folks, I just want to challenge you. Learn how to make plans, but let God guide you in those plans, and you will learn how to walk with God. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he says, I've wanted to come to you for a long time. Been a desire of mine. And it looks like I might finally be able to come visit you, and you help me, and me help you. But before I go to you on the way to Spain, I have to go somewhere else first. The Spirit of God's telling me to go somewhere else first. Anybody know where that is? We just read it tonight. No? Where? Very good, Jeremy. Jerusalem. Go back to Romans 15. Verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. But at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Paul's plan was to go to Spain and he wanted to stop in Rome and visit the church on his way. But he actually was looking first to what God was telling him to do next, which is go to Jerusalem. By the way, he was in Corinth when he wrote what he wrote to the, book, uh, to the church in Rome, and that's in Achaia. And he was going to Jerusalem because he had connect, collected a love offering from the Gentile believers in those areas for the poor in Jerusalem. For those of you that don't remember or maybe not, don't know or just need to be reminded, the early believers in Jerusalem who were Jewish, when they got saved, lost everything. I mean, they were no longer allowed in the synagogue. Their families disowned them. They lost their jobs. They lost everything. They were outcasts. And they were immediately poverty-stricken. That's why the early church 
spent their time gathering and sharing amongst each other and making sure everybody was taken care of. And those who had stuff still made sure that they shared it with them so they were taken care of. And there were people, there were believers in Jerusalem, and because of the gospel, they were in need. And if you remember from Galatians chapter 2, we saw this last time when we were together last week. Uh, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, where the Bible went on to say that Paul had been called by God to go to the Gentiles and Peter had gone to the Jews. Verse 10 goes on and says, but they also told us to remember the poor wherever we go. And so Paul has been collecting an offering everywhere he's gone from the Gentile believers to go take care of the Jewish believers. This gift was coming from where? You just read it. Macedonia and Achaia. For the sake of time, write this down, look at it later on. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, Paul writes to the, the church in Thessalonica, and he was praising God for what God had done there, how they got saved, and they didn't just receive his word as a man's word, but God's word, and it was received with power. And he says, word has already spread all the way to Macedonia and Achaia because of you. But go to 1 Corinthians 16. I want to walk you through real quick this, the background and what the Bible teaches about this love gift, this offering that was collected. Because Corinth is in Achaia. Paul wrote from Corinth to the church in Rome. But when he wrote his letter to the church in Corinth, he had given them instructions about collecting for the poor. Go to 1 Corinthians 16. Look at verses 1 through 4. Now, Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there'll be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Now, if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So when he first wrote this, his plan wasn't that he would go with the offering, but he'd send some responsible people to go with it. But if it's advisable that I go, well, between when he wrote 1 Corinthians and when he wrote the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit had made clear to him that he was to go to Jerusalem. And we're going to talk about that in great detail next week. And I'll explain why in a little bit. So he tells them, look, I want you to, every Sunday when you get together, I want you to set aside an offering for the poor in Jerusalem and just set it aside each week so that when I show up, I can collect it and we can send it to Jerusalem, whether with somebody else or with me. Now go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He, he writes a little bit more about this in his second letter to them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, look at verses 1 through 15. He's bragging to the church in Achaia, Corinth is in Achaia, about what God did already in Macedonia. He said, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace, which is the love offering for them. 
But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace as well. Now, Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, collecting the offering, but also to desire to do it, so now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness, as it is written. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So as he continues now, a year later, they've been collecting this offering. He says to him, I want you to make sure you finish it well. And I'm not commanding you to do this. I want you to do it out of the love of your heart. But go over to chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, and he goes into a little bit more detail, starting in verse 1. And he goes, now it's superfluous for me to write to you about the, this ministry for the saints. That's the love offering again, for I know your readiness. Of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So in other words, remember, he had already sent this letter earlier about the love offering in Corinth. And that they were to start collecting it. And he's been bragging about the church in Corinth to the churches in Macedonia. All right. So he says, which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find out you're not ready, we'd be humiliated to say nothing of you. For being so confident, for being so confident, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Now, before I read the rest of what we're going to look at, let me just catch you up with what he just said to him. He said, look, I've been bragging about you guys for a year about this offering you've been collecting every, every week for them. I'm going to send some guys ahead of me before I go to make sure that you're ready and it's collected and you're ready. Because I don't want to be embarrassed and you to be embarrassed if I show up and Macedonians happen to come with me and they realize you go, what, what love offering? So he goes, we've talked about this. Make sure you're ready. But now look at what he says next. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God lives a, loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food 
will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Now, let me say something to you, and I'm just going to kind of hopefully let the spirit of God speak this through me in the way I want you to hear it. Paul here says, listen to me. I want you to understand something. When it comes to giving to the Lord and giving to others, it should never be compulsory. It should always be willing because God doesn't want you to give it if you're giving it begrudgingly. He doesn't need your money. He loves a cheerful giver. But he said, let me also tell you something about our big God. If he asks us to be generous, what does that tell us about him? He's generous. God would never ask you to do something that he wouldn't or to be something that he's not. So if God is telling us to be generous, that tells us God is generous. And I have to be honest with you. This was a turning point in my life. And please listen closely. I am not turning this into a health and wealth message where if you just give, God will pay off your mortgage and you'll never be sick. And all this stuff that some preachers take to an unbiblical realm. But at the same time, let me also tell you, for years, I was taught that I had to help God by pinching pennies. And I learned over the years that the more I tried to help God, the less help I had from God. But the more I started to believe that his word was true and to trust him in little baby steps of giving and to be generous. And when I felt like he was leading giving and glad to do it, God began to do something here, not only in our personal finances, but also in the finances of the ministries of Just a Preacher Ministries. That what he says here about he who supplies seed, bread for food and seed for sowing will multiply your seed so you can have more to give. And my wife and I began to do this. My, our kids will tell you, we have begun to teach them as young kids this phrase in our house when it came to money. And if we felt like God was telling us to do something, we did it. And we'd say this, it's only money. It's only money. In other words, it's just a tool that God uses. And if you see it as only money, it loses its power on you. It's just money. Here, take it. And folks, the God who said, if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. But if you sow generously, you'll reap bountifully. He's blessed us. He has. To the point that my wife and I, every year, when we look at our budget again, get to say, who else can we give to now? And I'm not going to give you the number because I don't want you to misunderstand. But let me just tell you this much. Even though we live off of people's donations to us in our ministry, we support It's easily, but let me just say it's a lot, okay? And then Paul said this. He said this. He said, and not only that, when they give for you, their heart's going to be, their heart, because they gave for the people in Jerusalem, their heart's going to go there. 
And right now, my wife and I pray for, are excited, and have a heart for people in Kenya, have a heart for people in, in South Dakota. We have a heart for people in France. We have a heart for people in Thailand. We have a heart for people uh, in the Seafarers Ministry, not only here, but also the one in Miami. And I could go on, but I don't want you to get a, a misunderstanding. I'm not here to talk about how generous we are, but I'm going to tell you this much. God has blessed us to keep giving more. And for those of you that have already heard, in our ministry, we do not charge for anything. You're going to see Paul talk about that in just a little bit. We do not charge for anything. This thing we're doing on, on Saturday, Just the Preacher Ministries is paying for everything. We're giving everybody free books. We're taking care of the meals. We're taking care of snacks, the water, whatever. And God has so blessed our ministry. Praise the Lord. We just had to order another thousand books to be printed that are going out all over the globe. And folks, this is to the glory of God. We have already spent, and this doesn't count how much it costs us to ship the books that we're sending everywhere. Just in the printing of the books, we have already spent over $40,000 from the ministry getting that book, What Will Happen Next, across the globe. And we have more money in our account now than we ever had. And God says, just keep giving it away. And I had the privilege of when I'm doing a prophecy conference in Scottsdale, Arizona, coming up in a couple of weeks, where they contacted me. They heard about the book. They, con they found out about our ministry. They said, would you come and do a whole weekend at our church here in Scottsdale, Arizona, Friday night, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. And I said, I'd love to come. They said, well, how much do you charge? I said, I don't. They said, well, you've got you to gotta have a, at least a set fee. I'm like, listen to me. I said, we will buy our own plane ticket. We will buy our own hotels. We'll get our own rental cars. I'm in charge of my own meals. We are going to come and bring you the gospel. We will never say to somebody, you, will, you can only hear God's word if you give me money first. Or if you make a donation, we'll then teach you. We want the gospel to be free. And folks, let me tell you, we've been doing it that way for years. And the one who supplies seed for sowing will multiply your seed to be able to do it. And it's mind-blowing how much he's blessed us. I can look you in the eye and say, we've never had more money in our bank for the ministry than we've ever had now. And we're looking forward to the more ways that God wants us to just put it out there. I want you to hear me. God will do the same in your life too. But if you do it to get rich, you've already missed the whole point. He gets you money so that you can do what with it? Keep giving it away. And if he knows that if he gives you more, you're going to keep giving it away, he'll give you more. If you think you're going to get more so you can get more, good luck with that. Now, he then says something very interesting, though. Go back to Romans 15. Verse 25, he says, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem and bringing aid to the saints... For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Gentiles are paying to help out Jewish believers. But look at what he says in verse 27. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to be of service to them in material blessings. Isn't that interesting? He says, actually, it's awesome that the Gentiles are giving to take care of the poor in Jerusalem, but they actually owe it to them. Because as we looked at last week, because of the Jews' rejection, their promises have been given to who? Us. 
And now the blessing that they had is ours. And God's pouring his spirit out on the Gentiles right now. And there comes a time when that time's over and then he's going to finish with Israel. But if we've come to share in their spiritual blessings, we owe it to the Jews to take care of them materially. I'm just going to say this. Be praying individually about whether or not God would have you some way bless those who are Jews so that they would come to know Jesus. There's lots of ministries out there, Jews for Jesus, Joshua Fund, lots of different things out there, ways that you could be involved even in praying for the Jews. As you've already heard me say over and over, there's going to come a point where God starts moving his drawing back to the nation of Israel and the Gentile time is going to be coming to a close. And we'll talk more about that on Saturday when we get into our Revelation study. But let me say this, you owe it to the Jews to be not only praying for the people of Israel, but if God shows you specifically how, sharing material blessing. But do you know the Bible also says that you also have to have that attitude or should have that attitude when it comes to your pastors and your local churches? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This truth applies biblically to preachers and teachers as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 1 through 18. Paul is having to defend himself. And look at what he says here. In chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, he goes, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm, an, I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and of Cephas, that's Peter, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in their crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share in this rightful claim on you, do we not even have more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. But if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but, not of my, but if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul says, look, God's design was that those who preach and teach the word should be taken care of materially as they share spiritual blessings. You should be taking care of them material blessings. But you know what? I don't want anybody to think that I'm in it for the money. And so because of that, I will not demand any money from anyone. 
And I, he was a tent maker. And God took care of him. And the Bible actually says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, that those elders, those who are the spiritual leaders and preachers and teachers in the church, they should shepherd the flock that's under their, God's care and, they, and under their care, God's flock under their care. And it says that they should be doing it willingly, not under compulsion, not greedy for money. There's a balance here as well. If preachers are out there saying, you need to take care of me, watch out for them. Because actually, they're looking for you to take care of them instead of the Lord. Yet, at the same time, the church should not have an attitude that says, well, we just want to make sure our pastors paid pretty much what everybody else around here is. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and following, it says that the, the, those who serve well in, as elders, especially those whose role is preaching and teaching, are worthy of double honor. And he quotes from the same passage about don't muzzle the ox. And it's obvious this is talking about money. The attitude of the church should be, we want a pastor who's not in it for the money and doesn't care about money. But we want to also make sure that he's got plenty of money. That's going to be a balancing act. Yeah, but what if, what if the preacher starts, you know, getting caught, caught up in money? Well, you know what? That's between him and the Lord. You do what God's told you to do and you let the Lord take care of the, the rascal pastors. You understand? For too long, I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor of little churches all over New England as I grew up. And I heard this so often. They would say, the Lord, send us a poor, humble preacher. You keep him humble, we'll keep him poor. The Bible teaches that because the Jews have shared spiritual blessings with us, we owe it to them to share material blessings with them. In the same way, I'm just going to say, y'all come from different churches. I pray you don't have pastors in it for the money. But I also pray that you have a heart that says we want to make sure our pastors are blessed. All right? Now, enough of that. Let's move on. Because Paul now, in the time we have left, is going to ask for prayer about something that is going to lead us into where we're going to go next week. He asked for prayer from the church in Rome. Look at verses 30 to the end of the chapter. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Remember, he said, I have to go to Jerusalem first, bring this love gift, and then I want to come see you for a while on the way to Spain. But I need you to pray for me, he said, because I need you to pray for a couple of things. One, that I would be spared from the unbelievers in Judea. You know, Paul knew he wasn't popular in Judea, in Jerusalem. He was pretty well known. He used to be one of them out there killing Christians. And he got saved and became one of the champions of the gospel. And Paul had a, well, he had a bounty out on his life, didn't he? And he knew that even though God was telling him to go back to Jerusalem... It was going to be tough. We'll deal with this more next week. But I'm going to show you a passage where Paul says more than once, I'm going to Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit's telling me to go. I don't know the specifics of what's going to happen, but I know this much. The Holy Spirit's warned me that every time I go, whatever city I go, I'm going to experience hardship and imprisonment. But I'm not worried about that. I just want to fulfill the role that God has for me. So he says to them, pray 
because I want to come see you, but I'm going to Jerusalem first and pray that I'll be spared from the unbelievers in Judea. And also pray that I get to come visit you with great joy and we have a time of blessing. We're going to deal with two questions next week that came out of this section. The first question is this. Did Paul ever make it to Rome? Yes. And we're going to deal with that because it's actually going to be a lot of fun if you've never really taken the time to look at it all. I'm going to walk you through. We're going to go back into the book of Acts where he goes to Jerusalem. How he knew he was compelled by the Spirit to go. How churches tried to stop him because the Holy Spirit was showing them he was going to be arrested. And they were like, you're not supposed to go. And we're going to talk about all that. How the Holy Spirit was telling them, even though other believers were saying, we think you're not supposed to. But as you're about to find out next week, even though Paul had been told that he was going to be having a hard time in Jerusalem, he also had been told by God that he would go to Rome. But it looked like he was never going to make it to Rome. And when you look at the whole story of how he ended up in Rome, by the way, um, do y'all want to know how he ended up in Rome? As a prisoner. Oh, but you're going to see next week, this prayer was answered on both accounts. He was spared from the unbelievers. They didn't take his life as much as they tried in many different interesting ways. We're going to walk through all of that. And also, when he ended up in Rome, even though he was a prisoner, he got to be there in Rome in a real, the most relaxed imprisonment you ever could have. He had his own house. Had a Roman guard, but he was free to come and go, and people were free to come and go. And he got to enjoy their blessing for a couple of years. But we're going to look next week at the fact of how we need to know what God has said because there are going to be times over and over and over and over in our lives that it looks like what God has said is not going to happen. And like I said, if you don't know the story, it's going to get comical how many times it looked like Paul wasn't going to make it. Here's the second question we're going to answer next week. Did he make it to Spain? And I'm going to answer that one. I think we kind of do, but I'll, the, the short answer is we don't fully, but I think there is an answer, yes or no, and we're going to deal with that next week. So you have to come next week for the rest of that one. What we're going to do in the time we have left tonight, though, is deal with the fact that Paul is asking for prayer. We've just talked a little bit about making sure that our spiritual leaders are financially taken care of, but let me ask you an honest question. Do you really pray for your pastors? I mean, really pray for the pastors. And here's, here's what I mean by this. I grew up as a pastor's kid. I'm one of five children. My dad was a pastor. And I grew up in the fishbowl. A lot of people have no idea what pastors deal with and what their children and their families deal with. And then I was a pastor for over 20 years in churches in Florida and then New Orleans and then Chicago and then back in Florida. And for the last 17 years now, I've been traveling the country encouraging churches and I've been in spiritual ministry in this way, but I've been in the pastor's role. I've been a spiritual leader. And let me just say something to you. When you go bowling and you want to knock down all the pins, what pin do you aim for? The head pin, don't you? Because if you can hit the head pin, it'll affect a whole lot more. And let me just tell you something, folks. You have no idea how much pastors deal with from attacks from the enemy. Again, God allows it for his purposes. As you're going to see next week how much Paul went through. But a lot of churches and church members don't really have any clue as to what the pastors are dealing with and all the gripes and complaints and emails and people complaining about the temperature or the music or the sermon or all this kind of stuff. 
and you have no idea how much people, pastors deal with, and they spend their time griping about the pastor. Let me say something to you. The Bible, and I'm going to show you a couple of passages before we go, over and over shows that we're to be praying for those in authority over us, not just the government, but especially also our pastors. Years ago, when I left my last pastorate at First Baptist in the Atlantic, when I left that church, there were four pastors on staff. And I, when I left, there were still three of them left. And after about six months of my traveling, I stopped back by the church one day and the pastors I knew were going to be having their staff meeting. And so I stuck my head in the conference room and said, hey, guys, how's it going? And they said, hey, you got a minute? I said, sure. What's up? They said, we need to talk to you. So I sat down in the conference room with the other pastors and they said, we need to ask for your forgiveness. I said, what for? They said, well, we used to sit in this conference room with you as senior pastor and you used to sit in the big chair at the end of the table. We used to be jealous of you. Because you got to run the church and lead the meetings and you got to do most of the preaching and you got the big paycheck and we wished we could be in your seat. Now we've gotten your seat and we don't want it. They said we had no idea how much junk you had to deal with as senior pastor. And we want to ask for your forgiveness because we had ill will towards you and we had no idea. Folks, let me say something to you. I can promise you, your pastors are going to make mistakes. They're going to be as human as anybody. And they might even, by, led by the Lord, lead in areas and directions you don't like. You leave them to the Lord. You only deal with it if it's an unbiblical thing. And then there has to be more than one or two witnesses, the Bible says, to deal with an elder. But at the same time, pray for them. And watch what will happen. When you start praying for your pastor... Your attitude toward them will change. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. Look at verses 17 through 19. Hebrews 13, 17 through 19. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. And I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Pray for us. Don't just obey them. Pray for them. Let me tell you a cool story. Show you the power of God changing your heart when you begin to pray for somebody that you were upset with. When my wife and I, we've been married 32 years now, when my wife and I were engaged, it happened to be the summer of my wife's parents' 25th wedding anniversary. They were both school teachers. And my wife's dad, uh, on the summer of their 25th wedding anniversary, wasn't there. Because he'd always wanted to go with his buddy to Alaska. And he and his buddy had been planning this trip to Alaska. And he had set it all up that the truck was ready. And as soon as the school bell rang on the last day of school, he jumped in the truck. And he and his buddy drove all the way from Florida, all the way in this pickup truck to Alaska. And he spent the entire summer in Alaska and came back literally the day before school started the next fall. Full beard and all. He was gone the whole summer of the summer of their 25th wedding anniversary. And Becky's mom spent that whole summer alone. I was over at their house and 
visiting Becky, and Becky's mom comes to me and says, can I talk to you for a second? And I'm thinking, oh, what do I do? She said, I'm tired of being the spiritual leader in our house. I go, what are you talking about? She goes, oh, I'm the one that's always saying we need to read our Bibles. I'm the one that's always seen, saying we need to pray. I'm the one that's always saying we got to get to church. Now, you got to understand something about Becky's dad. He's a great guy. He prayed a prayer and he was four years old. He had gone to Christian college. He actually was one of the deacons and his head deacon. And whenever the pastor was out of town, he would preach in the church. Sunday school teacher. Amazing man. But now he's up in Alaska and his wife says, I'm kind of mad at him. And at the same time, I'm tired of being the spiritual leader. I wish he'd take the spiritual leadership in this house. Now, I got to be honest with you. I'm in my 20s at the time. And I remember thinking to myself, how am I going to give my mother-in-law to be spiritual guidance on marriage when I've never been married? So I began praying 100 miles an hour under my breath. Help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. <laughs> and then this came out of my mouth. I said to her, I said, do you tell him how you feel? She says all the time. I said, stop. I said, let me say something to you about men. When you nag us, we know you're right. But we don't want to positively reinforce that behavior. And so we're not going to agree with you. Because if we agree with you, you're going to think that nagging works. I said, also, I'm going to ask you another question. Do you pray for him? She said, not really. And I said, well, here's what I want you to do. I said, I want you to start praying for him, praying for him three times a day. When you get up in the morning, you pray for him. At lunchtime, you bow your head for your lunch. You spend a little time praying for him. And when it's dinner time, you pray for him again. I said, two things are going to happen. One, God's power is going to be released in his life. When we stop trying to fix people and we say, God, you fix them, that's when his power is released. And I said, another thing's going to happen is your heart toward him is going to change. You're no longer going to see him as this bum, this rascal, this whatever that's not what you think he ought to be. You're going to see him as someone that God is working on. And you're going to have a heart for him. Well, something very interesting happened as my mother-in-law started to pray for her husband of 25 years. He and his buddy up in Alaska get into a fight. It was a bad enough fight that one took the tent, one took the truck, and they parted company. So now my father-in-law is alone in Alaska by himself. One day when he was sitting there looking out over the creation that God had made, God got a hold of him and said, you prayed a prayer when you were four years old. You went to a Christian college. You've even served in the church, but you don't know me. And he gave his life to Jesus Christ in Alaska. He came home that first Wednesday night, walked down the aisle at prayer meeting, went right to the pastor and said, I need to be baptized. The pastor said, no, you don't. You're fine. He goes, no, I just got saved. I need to be baptized. And let me tell you, this man that we had no idea he didn't know the Lord, he changed. He became an amazing man of God. But what happened? The one who was upset with him handed him over to the Lord. And the Lord was able to do a work. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. By the way, Tuesday night didn't get that story. I have my plans, but I let the Lord show me what to do. 
1 Thessalonians 5, look at verse 25. Brothers, what? Isn't that interesting? And this is in the midst of rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks all in circumstances, don't quench the spirit, all this stuff. One verse by itself. Brothers, pray for us. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Second, sorry, 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. I'm going to ask you to pray for me. Because as God continues to expand this ministry... I want to make sure that I stay where God wants me to be. I've already shared this with the men that I spoke to yesterday at men's luncheon. But one of the big things that God has been showing me in my life, and it's an area that I'm working on by his grace, I'm not going to be able to fix it myself. I need his grace to do it, is that I would not only stay humble, but become more humble. A very interesting phenomenon has happened as I have traveled the country and go to different places. And this has been happening for years People that I've never met will walk up to me after the service and say, I'm supposed to pray for you. And I'm like, that's wonderful. What are you supposed to pray for me? And almost 100% of the time, these individuals will walk up and say, God told me to pray that you would stay humble and be humble. God has blessed me in a lot of ways, ministry-wise. I could probably quote to you most of the Bible, but you know what? If I can speak in the tongues of men and angels can fathom all knowledge and mysteries, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. And as the ministry is growing rapidly right now, God has been saying, Jim, I want you to take the low road. That's hard for me. I know how I like things. I need your prayers. I need your prayers. But don't just pray for me. Pray for your pastors. And watch how God does a work in their lives. You don't have to know all the stuff they're going through. Just pray for them. Next week, we're going to have a lot of fun at looking at all the things that happened that sure look like Paul wasn't going to Rome. They start piling up to the point that it literally could be a comedy. But I'm going to encourage you, if you know what God has said, it will happen. What about Spain? That's next week. I love you. We'll see you. Thanks for, thanks for coming.